So that was a clip uh, from the Passion of the Christ. But to understand this clip better, let's go back a few days from when that moment took place. One Friday morning in Jerusalem, about 6 a.m. around the year A.D. 30, there was a man named Jesus who stands on trial. An hour later at 7 a.m., he is sentenced to death. And for the next two hours, this man would be beaten in the head with a staff over and over and over again. He would be forced to wear a crown of thorns upon his head. He would be spit on and he was flogged, which means he was whipped. And at the end of the whip were pieces of stone and lead. So whenever it hit you in the back, they would latch in to the skin and the muscles. And whenever they ripped it back, they would rip the skin and muscles, flesh, chunks of it would be ripped off. He was then forced to carry a cross having the wooden beams rubbing his already scourged back and his legs. And he carried his cross, was stripped naked, and then nailed to it. And there's actually, it's not scripture, but there's an ancient letter that was found that claims Mary, his mother, walked up to the place where he was hanging and seeing three crosses, she asked, which one is he? Because he was beaten to the point of being unrecognizable, even by his own mother. Scripture does support this. The prophet Isaiah predicted this in his writings. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. This man Jesus hung on the cross, mutilated, naked, humiliated, suffocating for six hours before he died. And what was his crime? That this man Jesus was going around teaching. He was doing miracles. He was healing people, forgiving sins, and and preaching that he was bringing God's kingdom, his rule and reign to earth, and that salvation was found in him by grace through faith in him, and that it was for anyone and everyone. And he claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. He was claiming to be God, and he was killed for it. But as you saw in that clip that we just watched, and from the biblical accounts as well as texts outside of scripture, there were people who claimed that after his public murder, they claimed that they saw him alive. They claimed they saw him risen. And this is what we believe as Christians, that the tomb that Jesus was buried in is empty because Jesus supernaturally raised from the grave, just as he predicted he would do in the gospels. The resurrection of Jesus is a crucial issue for us. This belief is required for eternal life. But look what what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 17. He says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So he's saying if Christ, if Jesus hasn't done what he said he was going to do, if he didn't actually raise from the dead, there's really not a lot of hope for you because you're still dead in your sins. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have already died, there's no hope for them. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of people most to be pitied. He's saying, if this isn't true, we should be pitied more than anybody else. But look what he says in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For also is, or excuse me, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. He's saying because of Adam's sin, the consequence is death, but because of one man now, if we trust in him, we can have life. He's saying sin was brought into the world by one man, and by one man it is going to be eradicated from the world. Everything we believe in, everything we hope for, hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Our hope of future resurrection, the conquering of sin and death, the final reign of Christ where he will come to judge the living and the dead, all of this hinges on the resurrection. Our faith, everything we believe, everything we hope for, hinges on the fact that the tomb was empty three days later. But is this fantasy? Is this absurd? Is this wishful thinking? It's implausible, right? People don't rise from the dead. Is there evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? Well, we are in the final week of our series called Six Reasons I Might Lose My Faith and Six Reasons That I Won't. And this series is part of our desire at Rooftop to be a place where you can come safely with your doubts and with your concerns. But I want you to know that this is also a place where you can be built up as a believer, where your faith can be built up and you can grow as a disciple who makes disciples. And I also want you to know that we as Christians do not have a naive faith based on paper-thin foundations of wishful thinking. We have a faith that is consistent with reason, not contradictory to it, and our beliefs in Jesus are grounded in reality, not detached from it. And so this morning, we are going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and we believe as Christians that God supernaturally raised Jesus from the grave. But that's kind of crazy. (laughs) It's kind of insane, right? Are there explanations that are more likely? Skeptics claim that there are more plausible explanations as to why the tomb was empty than a supernatural resurrection. Some skeptics would say that any explanation other than the resurrection makes more sense because, frankly, people don't rise from the dead. And if you were here for my very first sermon in this series uh, back in January, I talked about what separates Christianity from the other world religions. And the biggest one is that no other religion has a resurrection. I showed you that according to Greek, Roman, and Jewish texts, that Jesus was a real person who was really killed, and his tomb really was empty three days later. And people really believe that they saw him alive after he was killed. Sources hostile to the gospel admit this fact, that the tomb was empty. Again, Jews, Romans, and Greeks, and those skeptical of Christianity have come up with reasons why the tomb was empty, but it is a historically proven fact that the tomb that Jesus was buried in was empty three days later. And in my opinion, the most plausible explanation is that Jesus did what he said he was going to do, that he would be killed and that he would rise from the grave. And just as Isaiah, the prophet, had predicted 700 years before Jesus' birth. However, skeptics like our old friend Bart Ehrman, remember him from my last one, I watched a debate and he said this, if, if you went to a tomb three days later and it was empty, you wouldn't think resurrection, no. You would think grave robbers or, hey, I'm at the wrong tomb. The empty tomb isn't going to convince anybody. And he would go on to say that there are a number of plausible explanations as to why Jesus' tomb was empty three days after his public execution and burial. So here, I'm going to go through some of the most well-known and popular scholarly counter-theories that dispute the resurrection 
and seek to answer how and why the tomb is empty and why people believe that they saw Jesus after his public execution and public burial. Number one, the swoon theory. The premise is is that Jesus did not actually die, but he went into a coma or a swoon from the severe pain and the trauma of the crucifixion. However, in the cool atmosphere of the tomb, he was revived and was able to get out of the cloth that tightly wrapped his body and then appear to his disciples as if he has risen from the grave. Well, I would dispute that by saying the Romans were experts at execution and they themselves would be put to death if they let a condemned man escape. And they were so certain that Jesus was dead, uh, the gospels record they didn't even break his legs, which was customary at the time. And they actually thrust a spear to make sure that Jesus was dead. They thrust a spear into his side and the gospels uh, record that blood and water flowed out. They had their proof that he was dead because this only occurs when the heart stops beating. So doctors have long believed that if someone is without a heartbeat for longer than 20 minutes, the brain suffers irreparable damage. So as soon as the heart stops, you lose consciousness, your brainstem reflexes are gone, but also the electricity that your brain creates slows down immediately, and within 2 to 20 seconds, you completely flatline. There's no blood flow in the brain, no activity about 10 seconds after the heart stops. So for the swoon theory to be valid, at the very least, his heart had been stopped for hours, at the very most, three days with no heartbeat or blood flow. Jesus would have had to have survived the massive loss of blood through the scourging, the beatings, the nail wounds where he was nailed to a piece of wood, and the spear that was thrust into his side. In addition to that, in this weakened condition, he would have to endure 40 hours without food or drink, manage to unwrap himself from his tightly wrapped cloth, roll away a massive stone, and then overpower two Roman guards. And then he would have to travel countless miles in that condition to make appearances to his disciples over the course of 40 days. Not impossible, but that seems very unlikely to me. Number two, the mass hallucination theory. The premise is that everyone who saw the risen Jesus was experiencing a hallucination. Well, my rebuttal to that would be, well, the disciples honestly didn't expect to see him alive, but we'll get into that in a minute. And I also did some reading on hallucinations and what causes them. Mental illness, side effects of medications, physical illnesses like epilepsy, or being drunk. And over a 40-day period, hundreds of people, hundreds of people at different times, different locations, with different groups, all record that they saw the risen Jesus. And in one instance, 500 witnesses claimed they saw Jesus at one time. Paul records this in 1 Corinthians. And this is also one of the earliest creeds that we have. We believe this was actually written within six months of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Within six months, this was a creed that was going around by early Christians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. 
that he was buried, was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, or the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. I love that part. He says, most of them are still alive. So if you want to go, you can go ask them and you can go check for yourself. They're still alive. So for this hallucination theory to be true, all 500 people would either have to be mentally ill, experiencing side effects from their sleep apnea or bipolar medications, or have epilepsy, or be drunk. Again, not impossible, very improbable. Also, it is impossible for 500 people to hallucinate the same thing. Hallucination comes from the Latin word, which means to wander mentally, meaning it happens in your own mind, in your own head. It's like dreams. They're happening in your own head. You cannot connect to your spouse's dream in the middle of the night and dream the same dream. I can't be dreaming of Maui and then say, hey, Chandler, wake up and hallucinate with me and let's go on a free vacation. (laughs) Doesn't work that way. So this theory does not hold a whole lot of weight. Number three, this is the most popular, but I think the most easily refutable. Number three, the stolen body theory. The premise, Jesus' disciples took his body in order to fulfill Jesus' last words, that he would be betrayed, that he would be killed, and three days later he would rise from the grave. According to scripture, this goes back to the day the guards who stood watch at Jesus' tomb and saw all of this unfold. They told the chief priests what had transpired. The tomb was rolled away. Jesus is gone. And the chief priests bribed the guards. It's recorded in Matthew, telling them, tell everybody that the disciples stole the body instead of what you actually witnessed. Well, my rebuttal would be Jesus' disciples would not have taken his body because they left the scene of his arrest and crucifixion convinced he was dead. If you remember, Peter denied Jesus and says, I don't know that man. And then when the women reported, hey, Jesus has raised from the grave, the tomb is empty, look at what happens in the Gospel of Luke. The disciples said their words seemed to them an idle tale, right? It's just fantasy. People don't rise from the dead. And they did not believe them. They didn't even believe the witnesses to the empty tomb. The apostles had no reason to counterfeit Jesus' resurrection since they didn't even believe it themselves. How could it be that the very men who fled for their lives to save their own skin while Jesus was alive could suddenly muster up the courage and ingenuity to steal the body from a guarded tomb and then now boldly start preaching about the risen Jesus that they knew was actually dead? Well, these are the counter arguments for the empty tomb, but in my opinion, they don't hold a lot of weight. They're easily rebutted, and it seems to me, at least in my opinion, they have less supporting evidence than a supernatural resurrection. But that is a bold claim to make. Is there sufficient evidence to come to the conclusion that Jesus was supernaturally raised from the dead? I have limited time, but I'd like to propose some of the best uh, arguments in favor of the supernatural resurrection of Jesus. Quickly, number one, the Jerusalem factor. So Jesus was publicly killed in Jerusalem. And his first post-mortem appearances after he was resurrected and the tomb was empty was first publicly proclaimed in Jerusalem. It would have been impossible for this Jesus movement to get off the ground in Jerusalem if the body was still in the tomb. 
So to prove that this resurrection tale was false, all the Roman government and all the Jewish leaders would have had to do is go to the tomb, exhume the body, and reveal a corpse in order to shatter this new religious movement. If any body could be produced, it would have been easy to do, correct? Because they knew where it was. Early Christianity would have died. And there is no oral tradition Anything written that suggests they did this, thought about this, or even talked about it. Number two, enemy attestation. If your mother tells me you're an honest person, I'm likely to believe her, but with some reservations, because odds are she loves you and is biased. However, if your worst enemy comes up and tells me you're an honest person, I'm likely to believe them. Why? Because they have no bias towards you in what they're saying. So the empty tomb is not only attested by Christians, but also enemies of Jesus, albeit indirectly. So rather than point to an occupied tomb, early critics came up with reasons why the tomb was empty, including that the disciples stole the body. But there would be no need for an attempt to account for a missing body if the body wasn't missing. So by accusing the disciples of stealing the body, they are indirectly admitting that the body of Jesus is not where we put it. Number three, the testimony of women. Sorry, ladies. If someone is concocting a story in an attempt to deceive others, you would not intentionally include information that would hurt your credibility. You would include things that would make you seem more credible and more worthy of promotion or elevation. But when it comes to the account of the empty tomb, women are listed as the key witnesses. In all four gospels, it is recorded that women are the first to see Jesus' tomb empty and tell people about it. If you are making up a story, this seems odd, particularly in this time period, because in this time period, in Jewish and Roman society, women were held in extremely low esteem, and their testimony was not considered reliable. But don't take my word for it, we'll just let them tell you. Josephus, in Antiquities, he writes this, but not let the testimony of a woman be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Let's look at the Jewish Talmud. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid. There's a citation you can go and look for yourself. So given the view of women in this culture, it seems unlikely that the gospel authors would adjust or fabricate these details. If this was a fabricated story, the gospel writers would have likely invented that it was a well-respected man who saw Jesus first and first reported the empty tomb, but it wasn't. They were making an already unbelievable story more unbelievable to say that women were the primary witnesses to this, yet that's what happened. They were the first to report that Jesus was risen. Former Oxford University historian, he writes this, all the strictly historical evidence we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And not only was the tomb empty, but there are eyewitnesses that indicate Jesus rose from the grave and appeared and spoke and ate with people. Number four, the unlikely conversions. So the known church persecutor who becomes the most prolific missionary in the history of the church. 
Saul of Tarsus, later called the Apostle Paul, changed from beating, arresting, and approving of the murder of Christians to becoming one of the most influential Christians of all time. When he began to preach, the book of Acts tells us that people said, wait, wait a second. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. What caused this change? What would make you go from hating Christians, wanting them dead or rotting in jail to becoming one, and not only becoming one, but becoming a preacher and a missionary, and then later being beheaded because you won't renounce your faith that Jesus rose from the grave and Jesus is Lord? How does that happen? Well, he tells us, Paul and Luke both record for us that he firmly believed he saw the risen Jesus. And notice, he didn't become a Christian and then claim he saw Jesus. He was on his way to arrest more Christians with a warrant in hand signed by the chief priests. And on his way there, something happened somewhere in the middle of the road. He becomes a believer. This is recorded by Paul himself and Luke and Clement of Rome and Tertullian. We have early multiple and firsthand testimony that Paul converted from being a staunch persecutor of Christ to one of his biggest promoters. The next one, the skeptic, James, the brother of Jesus, also has a sudden change in heart when it comes to how he views his brother. The Gospels record Listen to this. Jesus' family, his brothers, including James, were all unbelievers during Jesus' earthly ministry, and they thought he was crazy. Did you know that? Look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark 3.21. And when his family heard it, that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, that Jesus was claiming to be God, that he was going around healing people and forgiving sins, when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. They said that about Jesus. But then Paul later records that Jesus appeared to his brother, James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Then he appeared to James. Then later in the book of Acts, and from other early church historians, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and went on to be martyred, that is, killed for his faith in Jesus. And that is attested by Christian and non-Christian sources. I've got a question for you. How many of you have brothers? What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God? (laughs) And not only that, you call yourself his servant. James writes a letter and he introduces himself. He says, I, James, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got a brother, got a couple brothers. It would take a lot for me to believe that Dave was God. (laughs) But you want to know what might convince me? If I watch Dave be arrested, tortured, then murdered, and then I watched him buried, and then three days later his tomb was empty, and then a week later I'm eating lunch with him, and then I watch him ascend to heaven. (laughs) And I'd say, all right, Dave, you got a pretty strong case there to be made. James went from being a skeptic who thought his brother had lost his mind to being the lead pastor of the mother church in the epicenter of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem at the time that being a Christian was punishable by death. 
And because of his faith, he was thrown off the temple. He survived. Still unwilling to recant, he was beaten in the head with clubs until he died. Why would he do that for a lie? Why would Paul give up his life, his reputation, and propagate a lie and then be killed for it? What made Peter go from denying Jesus? If you look in the Gospels, perhaps you're not familiar with the story. Jesus um, is being arrested and Peter, they're saying, hey, aren't you one of those Jesus guys? Aren't you following him? And he says, I don't know who that man is. Even though he spent three years together with him, he denies Jesus, runs for his life to save his own skin. How does he go from that to preaching Jesus boldly that Jesus rose from the grave to the faces of the men who killed him, to the point of being crucified himself. Church history records that he was being arrested and executed, and he claimed that he was unworthy to die as Jesus did, so they crucified him upside down, and he preached the gospel upside down on a cross until he died. Let's look at the disciples. What happened to them? Andrew, the brother of Peter, was bound to an X-shaped cross and crucified, also upside down, and he preached until he died. From the cross, James, son of Zebedee. James was the first apostle to be martyred. He was beheaded. His head was cut off. Philip, the apostle, was martyred. He was tortured and then crucified. Bartholomew was crucified upside down after his skin was peeled off his body. Thomas, his body was ran through with a lance on a missionary journey in India. He was murdered. Matthew was also slain in Ethiopia on a missionary journey. James, son of Alphaeus, he was stoned and then beaten to death with a club. Judas, the other Judas, son of James, he was also crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britain after preaching the gospel there. John was boiled alive in hot oil but miraculously didn't die. So he was exiled. He was the only one who wasn't martyred for his faith, claiming that Jesus was risen. Why would these young men give up everything, risk their lives, their reputations, their families, give up everything and travel to the ends of the earth telling people that Jesus was raised from the dead? What would drive them to do that? Surely not a lie, but the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus did what he said he was going to do, be crucified, be betrayed, crucified, and then rise three days later, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We have credible, reliable, historical evidence that Jesus was killed, but that he didn't stay dead, and his grave is empty because he has been supernaturally resurrected. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 17, 22 through 23. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So what? What does this mean for us, and why should we care? I've got three points, two of which come from my professor, Dr. Brad Matthews. He said I could use this if I cited him and told everybody how awesome he was. So Dr. Matthews, you're incredible. Thank you so much. Number one, the verification of deity. If this is true, if Jesus did what he said he was going to do, if he predicted it, that he would lay down his life for many, 
Jesus is, as Paul writes, the image of the invisible God. That he is the firstborn from the dead. That he is God. This is verification that he is divine. Number two, vindication of royalty. That Jesus is truly the king of kings. If Jesus predicts his own death and pulls it off and dies for the sins of the world and the sins of humanity, Jesus is king and he is worthy. He is worthy of your praise and your adoration and your service and your submission. Number three, Validity of prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. What do I mean by that? That Jesus is the suffering servant. That Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who was slain, the scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world, the high priest who intercedes on our behalf as foreshadowed in Leviticus. He is the Messiah, the son of man who comes to bring God's rule and reign to earth as predicted and prophesied about in Daniel. He is the one whom the Lord has anointed to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, rescue the prisoners, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and comfort those who mourn as predicted and prophesied about in Isaiah. So what does this mean? Because this demands a response. You cannot hear this, church. You cannot hear this, that God sent his son to die for you, that when he looked upon you and saw you dead in sin, he was moved with not rage or anger, but with compassion, and he looks upon you with love, and he sends his son Jesus to die for you, and not just die, but he raises him from the dead, and now Jesus reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he will come back to judge the living and the dead. You cannot hear this and do nothing. Over the last 12 weeks, we have examined the best objections to Christianity and we have provided a rebuttal to them. We have shown that our faith in Jesus can stand up to public scrutiny, that our faith is based in reason and reality. It is not detached from it. It is faith, but it is not blind. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and Jesus is God. And we will unashamedly proclaim that from this pulpit here at Rooftop Church. And this demands that we do something. We either believe, we either repent of our sin, we trust in Jesus, not in our works, but in his work on the cross, and we believe in him and we are raised to new life, or you can continue in unbelief and doubt and reject the Savior of the world and reject his saving grace. But you cannot remain neutral this morning. And you can also no longer claim ignorance. The evidence has been laid out. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the image of the invisible God. He is risen, and he is saying to you right now, Rooftop Church and guests, follow me. So what do we do? Well, for my application, I've actually just got a big chunk of scripture. So let's go to the book of Acts. Jesus has been murdered. He has been executed. He is raised from the dead. He is raised from the grave three days later, and he has now ascended to heaven after having spent some time with the disciples. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, has just descended upon Peter and the other apostles, and they begin preaching 
Jesus. A message similar to the one that I just preached to you. Much better, but similar. And this is what he says in Acts. Brothers, I must say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Isn't you guys love David and you should revere David, but guess what? David was a man and his tomb is right over there and his body is still in it. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let's skip down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And look, look at verse 37. So the people have heard this, that Jesus is God, that he was dead, but now he is alive and he sits at the right hand of the Father ready to send you his Holy Spirit. And it says the people who heard this were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Perhaps you're wondering that question this morning. And then Peter gave them three points and they all started with the same letter. No. He says, Repent. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You're a sinner. You need forgiveness and you need the Holy Spirit. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you. Look at your neighbor and say, The promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, look at this, were baptized, and they were added that day 3,000 souls. Come on. Listen, there was no worship team. There was no keys player playing behind Peter as he's preaching this. There was no stained glass windows. There was no big building. There was no budgets. There was no butts in the seats, right? There was none of these things. There was Peter preaching. Jesus is God. He was killed. And guess what? He didn't stay dead. The tomb is empty. And he says, repent. Say, what do we do? He says, repent and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and receive the Holy Spirit. We were far from God. We were sinners with no hope. And God in his compassion looks upon you, not with anger, not with wrath, but with compassion. He is moved with compassion that he gives us Jesus to die for us, to die for you, to pay the penalty for your sins, to suffer our punishment. And guess what? He did not stay dead. He rose from the grave. And when we believe in him, we too are raised to new life. We go from being dead in our sins to being made alive in Jesus. Come on, somebody. So repent and believe and be forgiven. Because Peter said this. He said, this Jesus... God has raised him up. 
The tomb is empty. You can go check. There is no corpse in it. The stone has been rolled away and our King Jesus lives forever and he is reigning on high. He is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is risen and he reigns on high and it is by his work that we are saved by grace through faith because of his death and because of his supernatural resurrection. We are made new and I want to tell you this morning it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and you can make that decision today your knee could bow today or it will bow later and so I want to offer you an opportunity during this last song if God's stirring something up in your heart if the Holy Spirit is calling you he is. He's saying, follow me. During this last song, I want to open up this altar. I'm going to be up here. I want to pray with you. If you want to make the best decision of your life, if you want to bow to the King of Kings who is reigning on high in heaven, who gave himself for you, you can gain that treasure and eternal life today because the stone has rolled away. And you can be made new in Christ Jesus. And that offer is open. So go ahead and stand. Come on, somebody. Stand and let's worship the King of Kings. Let's praise Him like we believe in a resurrection. Let's praise Him like we were people who were dead and are now alive. Let's praise Him like people who were broken and have been put back together. Let's praise the King who makes all things new, who restores what is broken, who is near to the brokenhearted, who suffered for you and with you because death cannot hold him it could not hold him and in Christ Jesus it cannot hold you so come on somebody let's praise King Jesus in this place today